Tonight, so here's what we're going to do. Tonight we're going to talk about prayer. I forget what I called this. What was the name of this? Praying through the temple. There it is. Okay. I made that up tonight because I didn't have a title and they needed a title apparently, so I got one. But uh, what we're going to do tonight <clears throat> is a little different. We're going to we're going to teach about prayer, okay? <clears throat> and before I start, I'll I'll talk about why we're going to teach about prayer. And uh, and I know that you guys all probably know what prayer is all about. And like we came here to learn about prayer, like we know about prayer. But hopefully, there's a little unique um, take to it that we'll we'll have tonight uh, when we leave. But uh, we have a evangelism program that we subscribe to that we kind of developed up in in uh, Lambertville at Wildwood and. Uh, before we go in, into the community and try to share the gospel with people, <clears throat> we, we, we get together in small groups in people's homes and we pray. And we pray throughout the week in a, in a certain way about certain things that, that actually allows God to go before us in our meetings that we're going to meet with people throughout the week in, in order to try to share the gospel with. And uh, when, we, when we instituted these small groups, uh, these small prayer groups, I guess you could call them. Um, it was it was night and day the difference that we saw in our effectiveness in our evangelism. Not just because one of us was praying, but there was there was about a hundred plus people all praying for opportunities to share their faith in our little church. It's a little smaller than this church, and uh, I've been able to teach a little bit about prayer and this the way that we evangelize the the kind of the uh, program that we do to a couple of different churches and this prayer module is kind of one of those <clears throat> one of those lessons that we do inside of our evangelism course and so uh, I have an example of a time that I didn't utilize this and it was a catastrophe and I will talk about that I think I don't know if I'll talk about the beginning or the end but stay tuned for that story is a doozy but uh before we start prayer, I want to read uh, Ephesians six ten through eighteen, which most of us are probably pretty familiar with, <clears throat> being uh, the armor, the whole armor of God. And I want you guys to keep in mind the importance of the armor of God. Uh, I lost sight of of preparing myself to go to battle when I was out in the world, uh, battling the things that are not physical, but the things that are spiritual, and. Uh, I was, I was caught pretty, like, off guard um, in this one situation where I wasn't even considering the armor uh, prior to going out. And so getting, getting into prayer tonight, I want to just start with this putting on the armor of God as a, as a prerequisite requisite for us. So if we read here in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. And in the power of his might, <clears throat> put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, and against rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about you with girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, <clears throat> and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And here we are. We're, we're, we're we've put it on, and here's what we need to do: praying always with all prayer. And supplication in the spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance <clears throat> and supplication for all saints. So, Charles Spurgeon even says, True prayer is neither a mere mental exercise nor a vocal performance. It's far deeper than that. It's a spiritual transaction with the creator of heaven and earth. And, uh, you know, hearing that, that little quote, actually makes me think about, you know, half the time when I'm praying, most of the time it's just me just talking with God like, hey, God, thanks for stuff and help me with these other things and hope that guy doesn't get blessings too good over there, you know. Sorry, I wasn't pointing at you, no. (laughs) 
But, uh, you know, sometimes we're just, we're just talking with, do we realize we're talking with the creator of the universe, the guy that, like, spoke things, and, like, boom, there everything was? And uh, we approach it so flippantly that we're actually even allowed to go to the throne of God. And here we are just walking up and demanding the things that we want. And then we just turn around and walk away and be like, about to get those things, thanks. You know, just it's a sober reminder, I suppose, if you realize who it actually is that you're talking with. If the President of the United States calls you and says, we need your vote, he probably did call all of you, right? Saying that, robo, call, whatever. But if he actually did call you, you wouldn't be like, hey, thanks for nothing, you big jerk. Like, there'd be some reverence going on there if it's a President of the United States actually making a call to you. So who we're talking to, Oftentimes we don't we don't really think about it that way when we're when we're praying to God. But tonight I'm going to attempt not to teach you basic prayer knowledge necessarily. Hopefully, this group understands uh, the need and the reason for prayer. But <clears throat> I want to teach you to consider an approach to prayer that answers three important and maybe new questions. The questions are why why should we pray? Is prayer different than talking? Why should, we, why should we pray to God? Why should we set aside specific time for purposeful communicate, uh, communion with God? Then when should we pray? So if we're going to pray, when should we do that? What time frame? What length? Where do we start? Where do we stop? Are you supposed to stop? <laughs> That's a good question. And then finally, how should we pray then? And this will be where we spend most of our time on how we should pray. And I want to show you that God just, just doesn't want us to talk to him like a friend, although he is that. Or, or is there a higher purpose and a more meaningful process to approach the, the creator of the universe when we pray? And so how should we pray will be the third question. And answering these three questions gives us some things. It gives us an approach to God that he wants us to consider. It gives an approach that God outlines for us in Scripture, actually. And it gives us an approach of structure and form, uh, one that God has given us a blueprint of, and one that, if we use it properly, will draw us closer to God. It gives, an, it gives us an approach that is plainly given in Scripture, but not often considered. And it gives us an approach to prayer that helps us to prepare ourselves as priests to commune with, the God, with God Almighty, the God of the universe. So we know that if we're just praying to impress those around us, you know, using big words, big Christian words, could make us seem real godly, right? You know, I, I had a guy in our, in our little college group who he doesn't like praying out loud, all right? And I made him do it. And it was some simple prayer. But I know it was all he could muster up. It was all he could get out. And so I felt that it was very, I mean, it was really heartfelt, even though it was only a couple sentences in front of the group of guys. And then I got another guy who will orate for an hour with words that half of us don't even know. And uh, I don't know if it was as meaningful as the one guy that was almost embarrassed to open his mouth and he got some things out that were on his heart, even though they were simple. But if we're trying to impress those around us, big words helps <laughs> if that's all we're doing. But if we truly desire to please God and obey God, our appearance doesn't really amount to much because God doesn't look at our outward display. He doesn't look at our flesh, at our countenance. He looks at the heart. And in 1 Samuel sixteen seven, you don't have to turn to this one. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance, nor on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. So he looks on the heart so much that Christ even told his disciples that thinking and feeling in a sinful way constitutes just as much as sinning as if you did it with your physical self. It tells us in Matthew 5.28. And you can turn to this one. Let's go ahead and just start. Let's just turn to all of them. How's that sound? Matthew 5.28. Jesus says, but, but I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already 
Where? In his heart. Not physically. In his heart, he's committed adultery already just by looking on a woman with lust. And so our approach, our heart approach toward God in this thing that he's looking at is is super important. The, The Pharisees were seen by their peers as holy, right? But Christ calls them out for their hypocrisy. They were doing everything right. He first calls them hypocrites about 13 times leading up to the accusation or the judgment on their holy appearance in Matthew 23, verses 27 through 28. So flip over to Matthew 23, verses 27, 28. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. All right, 13 times he's already chastised them here, and now he's just getting to business. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but within are full of dead man's bones and all of all uncleanness. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Ouch. How's that one feel coming right? <laughs> right out of Jesus' mouth. So then let us approach God. Not just however we feel or want to as to be hypocrites, Let us approach God with a right heart attitude, the way God wants us to, the way he wants us to pray, because prayer is a form of worship. And in John 4, 23, we can look at that. John 4, But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. And so if we're going to be, if we're going to be sought after by God, people to worship him, we can intimately do this on an individual basis and in a corporate level. And that's prayer. And so why should we pray then? Okay. What happens when you pray? This is our first question. Why should we pray? Prayer is our way to commune with God. You know, we get to talk to our creator. God gave us this way to commune with him. All right, there's no other way that we can talk to God except for with prayer. And there's no other way that we in this age can actually hear from God except through his word. But God gave us this way to commune with him. He communed with his son, Adam, in the garden. He doesn't commune with us in the garden. He's not walking around in my garden. Listen, my garden is not growing things. It's, it's growing some weird stuff in there. I don't even know what's happening. I won't even talk about it. I see my wife's face. She's like, don't talk about our garden. Okay, let's move on. But God communed with his son Adam in the garden, where he was, where Adam was king over all of creation. He communed with his prophets in the Old Testament. He communed with priests in the temple. He communes with us, us today by his word, and prayer. By the way, we are uh, prophets, priests, and kings in Christ. Keep that connection in mind. But does prayer actually do anything? Or are we just talking to the wind and we think God's listening? Abraham asked God to spare a whole city if there were even just ten righteous in it. Turn to Genesis 19.29. Genesis 19.29. He said, you know, if there are just ten righteous in it, will you save it? And though God couldn't find ten, he did. He spared the life of one that he did find, Lot. And he did this due to the conversation that a righteous man had with him. A righteous man, Abraham, had a conversation with the God of the universe about saving a city or a people out of the city if he could find them. And when God found them, he did it because Abraham said to. Now, how, that, how weird is that? Let's see. Genesis 19, 29, and it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham. Oh, yeah, I remember I had a conversation with that guy. Man, okay, and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot dwelt. And there we have it. God God chose to send a guy out because, because he wanted to? Maybe. 
But the Bible tells us why he, why, he, why he did it. He remembered what Abraham had talked to him about. And so does this prayer do anything, actually? Well, I'd say for Lot, it sure did. Moses asked God to stay his anger toward all the children of Israel for their great sin while he was on the, on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. Elijah prayed for, for fire so that many would glorify God. Let's read, let's read that one with Elijah. First uh, Kings 18.36. My dad told me you guys just like turning pages, so I'm going to keep you all awake turning pages here. So we'll go to a verse, I'll read it, and then we'll just like move to the next verse. That's how I'm going to do it. Just say, 1 Kings 18, 36. I just want to make sure the teens know how to find all the books here. See if Ty's doing a good job teaching them books of the Bible. That's what it really is. (laughs) All right. 1 Kings 18, 36 through 39. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. And then... After he prays this, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, we don't believe that. We're out of here. No. They said, the Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. So Elijah prays. God hears it. God answers some prayers. Moses did it. Abraham did it. So we are to pray, period. Exclamation point actually is what I have. But we are to pray, period. We are to do that. As hard as it is and as as hard as it is for me, like it's one of my hardest things to do because it seems like there's no payoff. I can read the Bible and study the Word and I can have new knowledge. Kind of a little payoff right there. I I got something new out of the Bible, yay for me. But when I pray, sometimes I'm praying and I got nothing when it's done. But that's not the point. The point isn't to give me something. The point is to give God something. And so we got to keep in mind what the, what the object of the praying is. <clears throat> but we're to pray. Confess your faults one to another. Pray for or pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayers, prayer of a righteous man availeth much. James 5.16. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, not availeth little, not availeth nothing. It avails much. And, and if, we, if we look at the, the structure of that type of prayer, it's an effectual prayer, and it's fervent. It is an occasional and secondary. It's effectual, it's fervent, and you need to be a righteous man for God to hear this. And for much to be availed from it. So, who do we pray for? Pray for who? We look at 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 8. First Timothy, First Timothy 2, 1 through 8. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers... Intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men. So right off the bat, here we go. Paul's crazy. He's, he thinks that we can just pray for all guys, all men. Okay. But he exhorts us that first of all, prayers or supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. For kings, for all that are in authority. When's the last time you guys prayed for our president? Prayed for our Congress people. I mean, there's a time coming up, about nine days, I think, is what you said. Yeah, nine days, man. That we're going to, we, we possibly might have to pray for someone that we don't even like. Oh, no. But it says to, be pray, to pray for all men, for kings and all that are in authority. That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved 
and, and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle. I speak the truth in Christ and lie not. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So here goes Paul getting extreme. Can never be easy. Can't just be like, hey, you guys just need to pray a little better. Like, get better at that. I'll see you next time. Hopefully you're doing better. No, he's like, he's saying pray for all men and to pray everywhere. And so let's not get ourselves twisted up or confused or puffed up to think that we are good to go in our prayers because we pray for several people in a few places. Because that's not what Paul says here. He says to pray for all men everywhere. And so, how does prayer in the Great Commission then, how does prayer and evangelism work together? Why do Laodicean American Christians believe that we can do anything without God? <laughs> I can do all things without God, basically is what we should tattoo on our bodies. It's because how we, it's how we feel, it's how we believe, it's how we act. I can do all things if I just put my mind to it. I'll just do it. I mean, it's, it's literally in all of our branding that we don't even recognize. No fear. And we, what are you doing not fearing some? I mean, shouldn't we fear God? Isn't that, isn't that what the Bible says? Why are we wearing no fear? Just do it. All this stuff. Anyway. But why do we think that we can do anything without God? You might say, I don't feel that way. Or, you know, some things God wants me to do on my own. But God went before and with the children of Israel in pillars of smoke and fire and came down on the mercy seat in the temple and God gave us in this dispensation, not pillars of smoke and fire, but the Holy Spirit to go with us wherever we go, literally lives inside of our bodies. And just as the children of Israel needed God to go before them to prepare their way, we need God to go before us to prepare our field and our way, our workplace, our gym, our kids' t-ball games, um, our neighborhoods, uh, our parent-teacher conference, wherever we're going, we need God to go and, he needs to, and we need him to prepare that way for us. Ruth two fifteen through 16. Ruth two fifteen to 16. And when she was risen up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and reproach her not. And let fall also some of the handfuls of purpose for her and leave them, that she may glean them and rebuke her not. Listen, Boaz was going around. He was bundling up the sheaves and just kind of saying, just leave them there. And when she comes around, I want her to just pick them up and put them in her basket and off she goes. There's already work being done in the field and she's just got to go harvest it. You guys getting a connection with that? God has prepared a field, a harvest field for us, just like Boaz did for Ruth. And pray for God to work in this field. To prepare the harvest prior to entering the field. John 4, 4.35. Let's see, John, John, John. John 4.35. Through 38. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes, and look onto the fields, for they are white already unto harvest. He that, and he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap, that whereon ye bestowed no labor. Another man labored, and ye are entered into their labors. And so here we are, going through our day. We've got a field. Let's just say it's our workplace. And God's already bundling up the harvest. It's white unto harvest. I mean, the, the field is just white unto harvest. And we walk into work with a sour attitude and a heart attitude that's just poor. 
And we don't even see it, that he's bundled it up and left it there for us to glean and put in our basket, and we walk right by it because we're just, we're just doing our thing. We're not worried about the things that God's already done the work and sent the people and sent the laborers, and they've already done it all and bundled it up and set it there for us, and we walk right by it. So remember, God looks on our heart, okay? The attitude, our approach to things. He desires to commune with us on that same level, a spiritual level. And he is seeking those who will, who will worship him in spirit and in truth. So as we approach God, we do it with thanksgiving, which is a heart attitude. And it's, it's a heart approach, a thankful approach. Now be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, it says in Philippians, let your requests be made known to God. So we have to, be, we have to pray with thanksgiving, which, again, reflects a heart attitude. So don't forget that. But, but why should we pray God or, I'm sorry, why should we pray we need God? That's why. He wants to commune with us, and he wants us to commune with him, and he's the one who does all the work. The one who has, has, has prepared a field white unto harvest for us, and so we need to acknowledge that with thanksgiving. So when should we pray then? If we're going to do this, when should we do this? If we're going to pray and not just talk to God, you know, you know how, how are we going to go about this? God doesn't want vain repetitions like it says in Matthew 6. We need to have purpose to our prayers. He doesn't want our afterthoughts for the day. He wants to commune with his bride. You know, a lot of you guys have brides. I see you guys. You married guys. You know, I I want to hear from, from my bride. I don't want to ignore her. Wade, better watch this. After this morning's comment, you better pay attention with your ears on, buddy. But before bed, my wife and I talk about how the day went. And you know what I don't want as the answer, Emily? (laughs) You know what I don't want as the answer? I don't want to hear fine. How'd your day go, babe? Oh, it went fine. Oh, really? That's amazing. Tell me more. No, I want to hear about the struggles of the day. I want to hear about the victories of the day. I want to hear about the painful situations and how we solved those or how she overcame something or, or what's happening in, in any little facet that's going on in her day. I don't want fine. I don't want all right. I want to know some details. Give me the deets, lady. Right? I don't want to hear about yesterday even. I want to hear about what happened today. How'd your day go? While we were gone, I left you in the morning and we're getting back together how did it go while you were out to battle? You look like you're still alive. So what, what went down? And our Lord, our husband, by the way, our betrothed, he is no, is no different, right? Our Lord's no different. When I wake up first thing in the morning for like 18 years, all right, I, I, would, I would say every day if she wasn't here, but she is here, so I can't say every day, just about every day. I purpose to, to give my wife a kiss goodbye for, for work. You know, there's, there are certain days that I'm like brushing my teeth and didn't even realize that she left. But, you know, but it doesn't feel right to just go about my day without first acknowledging the most important human in my life, my wife. And so why do we think it's okay then to wake up in our comfortable homes, sometimes in our way too comfortable beds that we don't even want to get up from, we, we, we can eat our food and enjoy the, mm, the taste of a delicious meal. We can go to our jobs that we don't, we don't even have a clue how we have these jobs. If my boss knew my skill set, he'd fire me in a second. You know, and we enjoy all the comforts that we have on our way out the door each and every morning. And we forget to praise or thank or even acknowledge the God who gave us all these things. How do we do that? I can say pretty... Pretty clearly for 18 years, I didn't, I didn't forget to say hey to my wife on the way out. But I can count. I can count forever the days that I forgot to acknowledge God on the way out. As if we have nothing to be thankful for. Yeah, right. But, but even if you can't muster up one reason for thanking God daily, David gives us one that, that never fails. In Psalm 118, 28, it says, This is the day that the Lord has made. 
we will rejoice and be glad in it. If for no other reason that you're going to thank God for something, thank him that you woke up. Thanks for the day. It's raining outside. You know, I got bad news going on all around me. My family's sick and my boss hates me and my dog's, you know, just getting kicked around the house by me. But, but you can at least thank God for the day that he made, which was today. I, I, and you are, to be, you are to rejoice and to be glad in it with a heart of thankfulness. So start your day off with God early. Start off early. Early for you might not be the same as it is for me. Early for me is changing all the time. But early for me is like 4 to 5 a.m. Like that's early. And I, I really start my day at 4 to 5 a.m., especially lately. Um, but early for my wife is, is, is not that early. It might be 6 a.m. Early for my pastor, uh, Molly's dad. That dude's early is like noon, lunchtime. Like, I can't believe he's up by noon. Can you believe this? He's way early. That's right, right? Super early. The dude is, man. Anyway, he doesn't go to bed until like 6 in the morning, y'all. That's why. All right? He's not just lazy bones. Anyway. But whatever your early is, that, that's when you should begin your worship of prayer to God. Let's acknowledge him as soon as, as, soon as our feet hit the floor. A prayer of adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, and intercession. And this is, this is some examples of why in the morning. We can go to 1 Samuel one nineteen. First Samuel one nineteen. <clears throat> So, and they rose up when there? In the morning early. Not just in the morning when the sun was coming up, but early in the morning. Maybe before the sun even came up? I don't know. But they rose up in the morning early and worshipped before the Lord and returned and came to their house to Ramah and Elkanah. Uh, knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So early in the morning. Not just morning, but early. Uh, Job one five. Another example, early. You know, Job, that guy that I guess God thought he was pretty cool. So cool that he had to point him out to Satan and said, hey, check this guy out. But Job 1.5. Job 1.5 says, and it, and it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up there it is again, early in the morning, and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts, just in their thought process. Thus did Job continually. He didn't just do it once in a while when he thought like, you know what, my sons are rotten scoundrels, and I know they were out late last night being idiots. So tonight, I'm, or this morning, I'm going to wake up. I'm going to purpose one time a year to wake up. He did this thing continually where he woke up early in the morning and made sacrifice to God because not even for his own sin, but even the sin of his own kids that was in their hearts, not even what they did. But he did it early. That's when he decided to do it. And this communion with God should be continual throughout the day. Malachi 1.11. Malachi, last book of the Old Testament. 111. From the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord, Lord of hosts. From the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the sun. If you're doing it when you're waking up early, don't stop. Keep it moving. Keep it rolling. All the way until you go to bed. That's what God wants. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Verse 16. 
First Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Let's see here. Yeah, yeah. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. And everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. If you're going to wake up early and start, just don't stop. Just keep doing it. Now, I'm not saying that you got to like start praying on your knees and like, dear God, I'm going to stay here the rest of my day and I'm going to go right back to bed. But to be in a to be in a mindset of prayer that you're in constant communion with God. So that could change your day. That could change your life, right? Waking up first thing and not and acknowledging God for who He is and what He's given you. Um, I think just that one that that one tidbit there could change some of our lives. You know, we pray when we eat food. Dear God, thank you for this Chick Fil A. Bless it to our bodies. This fried chicken and French fries and ketchup. Like, he can do it. But man, sometimes it doesn't even feel right to say it. Especially if it's Taco Bell. Then you're like, I am not even praying for this. But, uh, <laughs> dear God, help me to survive the meal and go to work tomorrow. <clears throat> but lastly here, why should we pray then? Or I'm sorry, not why. How should we pray? The temple can be a template for how we pray. And I'm going to try to do this thing some justice. Uh, this, this, is, uh, this is an interesting picture in the Bible that if applied to prayer, it, it can actually, it did for me, it can change the way you approach the throne. But I want, you all, I want you all to see this. I want, to see, I want you to see this amazing picture that God's given us. And, and I'd, love the, <clears throat> I'd love the saying because it's true about the Bible that the Bible is a picture book. The physical is a picture of the spiritual reality. Have you heard that? Has, has Pastor Jim said that? The Bible is a picture book. So the physical things that God talks about in the Bible are a picture, oftentimes, of a spiritual reality. And when I was taught that just because something is spiritual does not mean it's not real, that the reality almost always is the spiritual. And the unreal thing is, is the physical picture that we're actually shown. I'll explain. <clears throat> the Bible gives us physical pictures so that we can understand the spiritual teachings and the, and the applications of those things. God gives, a, gives us several pictures in the Old Testament that are in there, and, and, and not just as a historical record. <clears throat> but did you know that the pictures in the Old Testament are of great value for today, for us? Those examples in, are there to teach us something. If we go to 1 Corinthians 10, 6 through 11, Paul actually writes this out pretty plainly for us to understand what the Old Testament's even doing in our Bible. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 10, 6 through 11. Now these things were our examples <clears throat> to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. <coughs> Sorry. To the intent, okay, so now, now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters as some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of the serpents. <clears throat> Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now, all these things happened unto them, the children of Israel, for in samples. And they, are written down, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. So they happened to these, to these Israelites. All these crazy things that, are, that we read about in the Old Testament happened to them for in samples to us. And they were written down for our admonition. So we have them in our Bible so that we can go back and read about the serpent and, and the, the serpent that was lifted up. And if you looked on it, you'd be saved from the snake bite. And, and we learned about the parting of the waters. And it was written down in a way so that we can go back and study that. And, and we can be admonished and we can have an example of what was going on and what's God talking to us. Those were for us today. 
It happened to them, but it was written down for us. So you see, there are things in the book that, that just might seem <clears throat> that their stories or history lessons are boring old genealogies, boring OCD-level blueprints of, of the temple on how to build a tent with the right kind of wood, the right size and the right fabric and the right sockets and the right furniture and the right metal and the right... Like, what in the world? Like, is this the weirdest story ever, reading about this thing? Like, why is he telling us? I'm not building one. <laughs> He's not telling me to go build a temple. Why do I need to know all the details of this? Well, it's written for our admonition, it says. The temple, the tabernacle, is an amazing physical picture that we can model in our lives. I want you all to consider <clears throat> the temple or the tabernacle as a picture for us to model on how to approach God just like the priests approached God, okay? So we, we learned, or, or I alluded a little earlier, that prophet, priest, and king, the way that God communed with the prophets and the priests and the king, you know, that we are prophet, priest, and king. And so if we're going to take this priestly role on and commune with God like the priests did, well, maybe we should, we should take a look at, at how it was structured for the priests to actually do that. Because if it happened to them, as an example, and it was written for, our, for us, let's go ahead and figure that out. And so there's a gate. There's seven pieces to this temple. There's a gate. There's a brazen altar. There's a brazen laver. There's a golden candlestick. There's a table of shoe bread. There's an altar of incense. And there's an ark of the covenant with the mercy seat on it. And those are the, those are the particulars. I wish I had a picture of the thing. But, but if you can just imagine... A, a rectangle right here in front of us, and on this end is the gate. And as you move through, you get to the to the brazen altar where the sacrifice is made, and then you get to the the brazen uh, laver where you then the priest will then wash all the blood and wash himself clean from the sacrifices that just went down. And then he would go into the the holy place, which has the the candlestick on one side with seven candles illuminating the other side of the the inside of that room where there, there, were, there were two rows of bread, show bread, six loaves on the top and six loaves in front. And he would, he would feast on that bread. And that's what they got to eat, the priests. They would feast on it. <clears throat> and then he would move over to his altar of incense and he would make this special incense you know, mixture according to the things that he gathered throughout that day. And then he would get into the Holy of Holies and he would offer that incense up as a sweet savor to the Lord, and he would make the atonement on the mercy seat. And so if that's what he's doing, here's, <clears throat> here's a little insight of what was actually happening. The, the gate or the court was a place of thanksgiving and praise. The brazen altar was a place of yielding and presenting. The brazen laver was a place of washing and cleansing. The, the, the golden candlestick was a place of emptying and filling. The, ta- the table of shewbread was a place of nourishing and equipping, and the altar of incense was a place of praising and praying, and the mercy seat or the ark where the mercy seat was was a place of worshiping and glorifying. And so I'm gonna, we're going we're gonna to spend the rest of the evening here, which isn't very much time. I might even go a couple minutes over if you guys let me tell my story at the end, but I want to just show you uh, some things uh, quickly as we turn on how these pieces of the tabernacle or of the temple can actually be translated into our current situation as priests and how we approach God in prayer, like the priests did when they were to commune with God. So turn to John ten nine, and let's talk about the gate. John ten nine says, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. So here's a gate to the temple, and we find right off the beginning that Christ calls himself the door, if any man could enter. So, okay, we're going to enter into this gate through Christ. John fourteen six. turn over just a couple more chapters. <clears throat> Jesus saying to them, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto me or unto the Father but by me. So if we're going to get to the Father and in the Holy of Holies, we've got to go through the gate. And no man gets there unless he goes through Christ. <clears throat> so then we get to the brazen altar. <clears throat> Revelation 
Speed flip. Revelation 13, 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose name, uh, whose names are not written in the book of life in the, uh, of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So here we have a lamb who's been slain at the altar. And who is that lamb? It's Jesus Christ. Colossians 3, 3 and Colossians 3, 5. Colossians 3, 3, for ye, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. And then Colossians 5, or 3, 5. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Here we have mortification of our flesh. We have dying to ourselves. We have a lamb who was slain, which is Jesus Christ, which we are placed in Christ. And so at the brazen altar, here's what happens. We're going to, in, in the name of Christ, we're going to approach the, the temple. We're going to get to the very first piece of furniture, which is a sizzling hot <clears throat> uh, altar. And if we're going to mortify our members and we're going to die to our flesh, we're going to start chopping off pieces of our body and we're going to start laying them on that altar. And we're going to take our tongue and we're going to cut it off spiritually. We're going to lay it on the altar and it sizzles up. And that smoke rises up off the altar. And we're going to ask God, take my tongue. All the wicked, crazy things that I say all day, all the cursings that I do with my tongue, I want you to have it. And we, and we lay it on the altar. Because we're mortifying the flesh. We're dying to self. <clears throat> and we're sacrificing our body as a living sacrifice. We chop the feet. We put those on. Lord, God, I give you my feet that they might take me to, to share the gospel with the world. We We... Cut off our lips, the things that we say, the things that we speak. We put those on there. Our mind, we take that out. We put that on the altar. And what we've done is just as the priest did, is that we are sacrificing things to God. But we're a living sacrifice. And so we can move from that altar then to the next piece of furniture, which is the brazen labor. So John fourteen six. <clears throat> Jesus saith unto him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Then we move to John 17, 17. Just a couple more verses or chapters back. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. 1 Corinthians six eleven. O ye Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you, our heart is enlarged. That's not the right one. First Corinthians, oh yeah, First Corinthians, sorry. 6.11. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. So here we are, we're bloodied up from sacrificing our body parts and giving them to God and just taking our whole self, which is, by the way, our reasonable service. To, sac- to become a living sacrifice in Romans. And then we get to the, to the labor and we start washing ourselves clean. And, we, and how do we do that? We wash ourselves with the water of the word. And so here we are able to, to clean ourselves with the, with the words of God. And we go into the holy place, to the golden candlestick, John 8, 12. <clears throat> John 8, 12 says, Then spake Jesus again to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but he shall have the light of life. So here's the candlestick. And it's, it's Jesus Christ. It's the Holy Spirit. It's giving us the illumination as we look across the room to the book, which is the bread of life. It's the, it's the shoe bread, the table of shoe bread. And, and you remember what we said there are six loaves. On the, on the top row, and then there's six more loaves on the bottom row. And, and the, the bread of life and the priests, they, they feast on this. And this is where they get their nourishment. And, and if, we, if we understand what 
that a picture that's a picture of is a picture of our Bible. 66 books. The bread of life, the word of God. The words that David said that or, or maybe it was Job. I think I have it later on here, but he said that uh, I desire your words more or your your law, your word more than my necessary food. <clears throat> And so we're illuminated by Christ, and here's the table of shoe bread, which is the word of God. Uh, I'll, I'll go ahead to Job 23, 12, I think is where it is, where he says that uh, he desires it more than his necessary food. Job 23, 12, Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed thy words of his mouth more than my necessary food. And then we, we get out of that room of where we're, where we're finally to the point where we're, where we're feasting on the Word of God and we're illuminated by the Holy Spirit on, on what He's actually trying to teach us. And uh, we are at the altar of incense. And so we're packing together a sweet, savory smell for God. And we're getting that thing ready to be lit up and, and sent up to Him. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So we're going to pray this. We're going to pray this to Christ, to, to Jesus Christ, because he is our mediator. And I've always wondered that. Why do we say, in Jesus' name I pray? Amen. At the end. That just like, almost, it's almost like a vain repetition for me. I just say it. Dear God, thank you for this day. I always start like that, and I always end, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. But here we are. Understanding that if Jesus is our mediator, this is why we're praying to Christ. He's the mediator. So Hebrews 7.25, did I say that already? Let's go there anyways. Hebrews 7.25. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that came unto God by him, seeing that ever, uh, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. And then once we've made that intercession in those prayers and we've sent that prayer up as an incense to God, we, we walk into the, the holy of holies, the holiest place. And there we are at the throne of God. Which, by the way, when the priests went there, they, they, they better have gotten it right on the way in. They better have been cleansed. And they better be ready to get there with a clean heart and pure, hand, or a pure heart and clean hands. And, and if they get into that holiest place and they didn't, they were dead. And they had to be pulled out. And so we get to go there however we want to. But don't you think when he told them this is how you need to do it, like we might want to take heed to that? Because it was written for, it was written as an example. It happened to them, but it was written down for us. So the Ark of the Covenant, Hebrews 9.24, just a couple chapters over. For Christ is not entered into the into the holy places made with hands which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Well, this verse even gives us a little more insight to, to the, the, the picture, uh, for the physical being a picture and the spiritual being a reality here. Christ has not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true. There's a true holy place that isn't made with hands, and that's in heaven. And it says, for Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which is our, are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, the true temple, the real, the reality. Now to appear in the presence of God for what? Why is he even there? What's he doing? He's there for us. He's there as our, as our mediator. And so, in ending here, I'm just going to, I'm going to give a couple quick reminders through the temple, and then I'm going to finish with my story. I think I spent way, way more time up here than I thought I did. You're right, Ty. Um, how do we enter the gate? We enter the gate with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name, Psalm 104. That's how we need to enter the gate, thanksgiving. At the brazen altar, I, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. We talked about that this morning. That ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's Romans 12. 
Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. This is what we do at the brazen altar. We offer ourselves up. This thing ain't about us. Give God the you. And then get past that. Go to the brazen labor. Having therefore uh, uh, these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Second Corinthians 7. Wash yourselves. And then the eyes of your understanding be enlightened at the candlestick, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and, and what the riches of his glory of his inheritance in the saints. Ephesians 1.18. And then at the table... Jesus And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And that's what we feast on. And then we get to the altar. In Exodus 30, And Aaron shall burn there on sweet incense. And here's how often he does it. He does it every morning. Aaron shall burn there on sweet incense every morning when he dresseth the lamps. He shall burn incense upon it. And when Aaron lighteth the lamps at even... He shall burn incense on it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. And so we need to, we need to daily, in the morning, very first, and throughout the day, be making sure that we, that, we, that we give that incense up to God in prayer. And then on the mercy seat, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. That's how we have the boldness and the ability to even enter that place. Because we are covered in the blood of Christ. And we are spotless. We are clean. And so how do you see the temple or the tabernacle? How you see that can be used as a template for our approach to God. Do you see how, how the connection could be that it was, it, was, it was done unto them and written down for us? And if we took that same priestly communion uh, process and applied it to us who are priests in Christ... Um, it's, a, it's an easy picture to, to put together. We need to do it daily, starting early. We need to be thankful when entering his courts. We need to be living sacrifices and then being sacrificed, washing ourselves with confession to have a pure heart, opening his book and allowing the Holy Spirit to do his work in our hearts, creating a unique daily offering of sweet-smelling savor to God in prayer throughout the day, boldly approaching the throne of, uh, as a son of God, offering up our incense. And so, hopefully, you can take this and maybe study it out. I don't know if I gave you enough time to even write anything down or even to make sense of it. Um, but I do know that uh, if we are going to put on the whole armor of God, you know, putting on the helmet and the breastplate and the and you're shotting your feet and girding about your loins and all and, and carrying your sword and your shield, like doing all these things though, with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. And watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints is what it says to do in, in Ephesians. And so uh, I will end with the, the end of my story with the, the one time I went out. Well, I say the one time. This very specific time I went out and I wasn't ready. And I didn't pray up my meeting. And I didn't you know, approach God and say, God, as I go out and I'm trying to share the gospel with this guy who I know is lost as a goose. Like he, he, he's just... He's just blind and deaf and couldn't feel anything and he was chained down to a sin rock i mean this guy was in a bad place and i'm like i'm gonna go get this guy saved check me out i'm just i'm i'm saving his day basically look at me go and i didn't include god at all and i showed up to that meeting i'm gonna tell you guys what i showed up to that meeting cocky and full of myself and that was one of the biggest mistakes I ever made. I'm going to tell you. That kid. <sighs> that kid. Um, I'll tell you slightly what happened. Uh, this kid was demon possessed. And I didn't know it. And when I showed up. I realized that somebody had already been there. And it wasn't me. And it wasn't God. And it was the principalities and rulers of darkness and powers of the air, and I mean, it was an insane meeting that I wasn't prepared for, and I felt naked and ashamed with no armor and no ability to fight because I didn't even take the 
I didn't even take the two minutes that it could have taken to invite God into my meeting. And I said, oh, this guy's so lucky to have me in his life. And so as you guys go out, I won't give you all the, all the details. If you want them later, maybe some other day. But um, it was hours and hours and hours that went by that we battled this thing. And long story short, several months later, about six months later, the kid actually ended up accepting the Lord. So through, through no ability of mine, apparently, uh, I, I, the Lord did allow me the opportunity to lead this kid to the Lord um, at a Starbucks in the middle of the evening. And, uh, but God, did, God was involved from that meeting. Every single time I went out to meet with this guy, you better believe I even called my pals and said, hey, I need you guys to pray because I got nothing with this guy. Um, so I want to encourage you guys as you go out and you try to share the gospel with your, with your community and you go out and try to, uh, to, to earn reward for Christ. Like, involve Christ in that great co-mission. Don't make it a me mission. Make it a co-mission. Like, you need to do it with God. You need to have Him with you. And the way to do that is to pray prior and to pray in a way that is meaningful and to pray often and to do it in the structured way that He gave us in the Old Testament. Very specific way, by the way. Uh, and if we would adhere to that, I think we can, we can avail uh, much. So that's all for that. Let's go ahead and, uh, and pray and close. Lord God, thank you for today. Uh, I just pray that as I, as I tried to show the picture of what you gave us in the temple and the tabernacle, Lord, my fear is that I, I, I'm not able to do it justice in the, in the time allotted and in the setting and even in my own knowledge, Lord, but I do know that you gave us these things not just for fun reading material to close our eyes at nighttime with, um, but, Lord, you gave it to us for a reason, and I pray that uh, as, as we diligently, honestly seek to see what the picture is, uh, that you would give us uh, enlightenment on, uh, on what the spiritual reality can be for, for how to apply that to our life. Go with these people. I just thank you for the opportunity to share today, all day, uh, from your word to them.